Hello everyone and welcome back to Soul Care with me Angie Fatal. It's good to be back. Before I get into things, I want to do a land acknowledgement. My home is on the traditional village sites of the Multnomah, Wasco, Callitz, Kathlamet, Clackamas Bands of Chinook, Tualatin, Kalapuya, Malala, and many other tribes who lived along the Columbia River. I don't just make acknowledgement. I look for ways to do more than acknowledge. I look for ways to, I don't know if a tone is the right word, but to change my neural pathways around how I look at the way I do things. You know, we're all learning. And if we open ourselves up to be learners and be taught, I think it changes the dynamics of things. So that said, one of the things that I've been looking at um, has been how can Thanksgiving, American Thanksgiving, that is... It's more than problematic. It's like honoring what was supposed to be genocide. And at the same time, can it be something different? Um, I, I think for years now, um, we've always done a chosen family Thanksgiving. That was one of the things that Todd and I had said um, before we even got married is that Thanksgiving would be ours. Because when I had lived overseas, I had always made it a day when I would gather all my friends together from all over the world that I was working with, and we would bring our favorite foods, the things that gave us comfort or were unique to our specific countries, and we would share them. And I can remember one, um, Thanksgiving that I did when I lived in Amsterdam and I had just come back from Uzbekistan and one of my friends who had lived there for a year, oh there's my dogs, that's part of the whole process, um, one of my friends that had lived there for over a year, I had only been there like three months, she's going to do this. difficult to hold a thought in my head while my dog is barking at falling leaves or a squirrel running by or just decides that she's going to be pissed off at a neighbor. So anyway, when I was living in Amsterdam and I had just gotten back from Uzbekistan, I threw a Thanksgiving feast and um, a friend of mine had been living there a year, so she had learned the traditional dish, which is Uzbek pilaf. And she brought that. We, everybody, I don't even remember what I brought. Maybe I made a pumpkin pie or something. Um, and all of our friends bought 
brought dishes that were specific to them and their culture. And we laid a big tablecloth on the floor and ate Uzbek style, which is, you know, shared dishes and eating with your hands. And um, that was just such a good memory for me. And at that moment, something had switched in me where Thanksgiving became about spending time with people I loved and remembering or trying to be more grateful and trying to give back. So Todd and I had said to our parents that Thanksgiving would be ours and we always kept it ours. And when I pastored the bridge, for years, we had a huge Thanksgiving feast at our in our little tiny house. And I think one time we even had, you know, 30-some people. And if you've ever been in my house, <laughs> does not really hold 30-some people. But it was all people that really needed chosen family or were living in Portland and did not have family. And or their families were dangerous or problematic, you name it. And it was a really amazing time. So that's what it's always been for me. That said, that does not take away how problematic it is and how painful it must be for indigenous people living in the United States um, who are constantly bombarded with images of, um, that's, I wouldn't even say just people dressing up and mocking and, um, you know, it's, it's disgusting anyway. And I, as a kid, one time went as an Indian princess, which I don't even think is a thing. And so I'm not, I'm not, I can't cast any stones because I, you know, as a first grader, I think that's what I went to school as for Halloween one year. So I'm saying all that to also say, what can we do that's different? What can we do to mark something in a way that is saying no more. So we can still celebrate, you know, friends and family. We're gonna be given the day off. Most, most of us will be given the day off in the United States. So what can we do to make a difference? It's like what I say at the beginning of most of my podcasts. Land acknowledgement is not enough. It's, it's the bare minimum, it's the beginning where in our lives can we make small changes with the power or the access that we have? And some of us have very little access. Some of us have very little money. So what can you do with the small that you have to make a difference? And one of the things that I was thinking is to, to look at Thanksgiving as a stepping off point to make a real effort as white colonizers um, in this country to make amends. And I, 
I don't know what that looks like, to atone and to make reparations. I think I do know some things that we can do. I think that we can support indigenous artists. We can support causes that I would say are not just indigenous causes. They are causes that, that are gonna change how we are able to live and survive in this world if we follow the movements and the causes of indigenous people in the United States, and not just the United States, all over the world, water protectors, land protectors, but making subtle shifts, like sitting down with our family and saying, okay, if we're gonna continue to celebrate this holiday, this is the beginning of something. It's not just the beginning of gratitude and changing the day so that, you know, it looks better and feels better for us. What can we do to shift our thinking to be radical about how we proceed in the future with the small things that we have? Because not everybody has expendable cash, but we all have something that we can turn into power. And you have to sit with yourself and figure out what that is. Um, I think I've said before, I have a little bit more expendable cash than I have ever had in my life. So I can look at things like, I want to buy a candle and there is an indigenous person. I don't know if they live in Montana. I'll find the information. My sister got me a candle for my birthday that is made by an indigenous person in the United States, I believe. It's called Tobacco Offering, and it smells so amazing. Bought it at a store that carries indigenous art and, um, you know, everything. T-shirts, books, clothing, medicines, makeup, all that stuff, all by... Um, indigenous people. So things like that, that's a small thing that I can do. You know, it's more money than I've ever spent on a candle. Um, but that candle is worth it. It smells amazing. And so when I bought a present for my friend that had a birthday, I bought her that candle one, because she took a class from an indigenous woman in, um, our area in Portland. And the woman taught about harvesting sweetgrass and braiding sweetgrass. And one of our favorite books is Braiding Sweetgrass. And it was a sweetgrass candle. So it's specific for her and she loved it. So those are small things. What are the little things that we can do to say, it's like, you know, when <laughs> every year this comes up, like, uh, the month where we celebrate Black history. You know, instead of saying, like people are constantly saying, why, why can't every day be Black history? Why isn't every day, you know, Indigenous, Indigenous Day? Why isn't every month Indigenous Month? Why is it, why is it like it is? We, and we have a chance to educate our children, to educate our families, I know that not everybody has the room to like completely switch things up in their family without it being, you know, 
uncomfortable, if not dangerous for them. So you do what you can do with what you have. So that's just food for thought. I've just been thinking a lot about how I want my life to reflect something different. I want my buying to reflect something different. I want um, the things that I support to reflect something different. And I have been in places and at times in my life where I felt completely powerless to do anything except fill out petitions, which I still do because I did not have expendable cash. So I want to say that I know that and I recognize not everybody is in a place where they can do something, but we are all in a place where we can open our mouths, where we can sign petitions, where we can like say, I'm gonna do a bake sale and whatever I raise, I'm gonna give to the water keepers or I'm gonna do X, Y, and Z. There, there are little ways that we can move for change that can enable big change. So <laughs> just came off <laughs> out of the shoot with that one. Um, and that's not even what I'm going to be talking about today, but I think it is important. It is important for us to be thinking and changing the things that we do. And it's not just the United States and it's not just Canada. Every place has somebody that they have taken advantage of historically, that they have destroyed um, their culture or tried to destroy their culture historically, or are actively trying to destroy cultures now. Immigrants is a really good example of that. Maybe maybe in the UK you can't put your finger on you know a tribe that was there before you or in Europe in general but actively right now in the UK people are fighting for the rights of um immigrants to stay in the country to have asylum to have more than asylum so those are ways those are people that you can give back to and you can say hey American Thanksgiving is terrible. And so I'm going to take back that day, even though we don't celebrate it, I'm going to turn that day in our history as a British person, I'm going to mark that day as, you know, a day that I start fighting for immigrants in my own country. You know, those are, those are little, if not big ways that we can make changes that will have a lasting effect on how we see other people and how we fight for each other. If you are new to this podcast, I like to talk about all things emotional intelligence, spirituality, um, what it's like to be a human in the world and try to do different than maybe um, what I was given or what people thought I could do in the world as a woman and as a woman that grew up in the church, I did not have a lot of power. Um, and I was not expected to do very much. And it was very confusing because, um, my dad was somebody that I, I mean, he always wanted a boy. Um, 
And eventually he got one and then found another. And that's a whole other story. We all have them. Um, so he kind of treated my sister and I like, so my, I have an older sister um, who I do not have a relationship with because she doesn't believe anything happened to me. That's also a whole other story. Um, she is three and a half years older than me. So she and I were the first. And my dad treated us very much like in our culture, American culture. You would treat boys like he took us to chop firewood with him. We, you know, helped him work on the car. We painted, we did all, you know, we did all those kind of things with our dad. And at the same time, so on one hand, there's this communication that you are strong and powerful and you can do whatever you want. And on the other hand, there's this communication that you are weak and fragile and also not worth much. And I don't ever believe that that's what my dad was trying to communicate. I think that's what the church communicated. And then my parents went along with it. And that does not let them off the hook. <laughs> so it's complicated. And so I grew up with this very mixed message. Um, also the message of being strong and not needing any help. Being a helper, but not taking help. And that has influenced so much of my life and been such a hard thing to unlearn. And I am still unlearning it. It is very difficult for me to ask for help. It's easier for me to take help from somebody. Um, it's a lot harder for me to ask for help or know that I need help until usually it's past when I needed it. So that's... I want to unpack this a little bit today because I talk about things that influence us that we have very little control over, yet still at some point in our lives we have to go, okay, I didn't make this happen. I didn't choose for this to happen. I didn't want it to happen. And yet here I am carrying this garbage bag of things that I didn't want or choose for myself. And I know that this is not unique to women, and yet I think most women, at least in the United States and probably most countries, have not been able to avoid this, even if they have parents who worked tirelessly to help them avoid this. And it's this grooming that we get as women. And that grooming um, is so subtle. And, I, and I'm not even talking about the grooming, well, it's all the same thing, but basically not listening to yourself when yourself says something isn't safe or right. And then from the time we come into the world, those things that we have, some of us very strongly, telling us, no, something's not right. Um, we are taught not to trust that which we're born to trust. At least that's my belief. Because I feel like from a very young age, I had a very strong instinct about people. Safe people, unsafe people, 
trying to listen to what I wanted and what felt good to me and not be pushed to do um, other things. Yet, because my personality is helper, somebody that looks for ways to help other people, wants to support other people, it comes natural to me. It's very confusing. (laughs) So you're trying to, on one hand, listen to yourself, but the authority figures in your life, your parents, the church, um, school, you know, anybody that holds any kind of authority figure type um, in your life might be telling you not to listen to those subtle warnings inside you. And over time, it gets harder and harder for us to hear what our instincts are telling us. And and I want to break this down a little bit like instincts, inner wisdom, Holy Spirit, if you're in the church. I don't know if they're the same, but I kind of put them all in the same bucket and say from the beginning, the trust that I had in myself was eroded, culturally, parentally, familially, societally, you know, school, it all of it. To not trust those things that my inner voice, my inner wisdom was saying, this doesn't feel good. This doesn't seem right. This person's not safe. Maybe don't hang out with that friend. Maybe it's time to go home. Maybe don't walk down that dark street. Some of it is all based in safety. Some of it is just like, this person doesn't seem nice. Why am I hanging out with them? But if you are groomed also to be nice, this is that thing again where you can go back to an old episode where I talk about the difference between nice and kind. They are completely different. But if you are taught to not make waves, not make people uncomfortable at the expense of yourself almost all the time, then you don't trust that you're not being, you don't, okay, let me break it down different. You don't trust that you're just not being, that you don't trust that you're not being mean. So maybe you have an instinct about a friend, you're like, yeah, I don't think this friend is good for me. Or it's even before your friendship has started, you have a, as a kid, maybe you have a play date and you're like, yeah, something's not right. But because you've been groomed in this certain way to not listen, you don't listen to that voice because that voice feels mean and it doesn't seem like what a nice person would do. A nice person would love and hang out and give that person a chance also made even more complicated by preaching in the church, at least in the Christian church. Because now, you know, their their soul depends on it. And that makes just everything this mess of like, who am I? What do I want? How can I trust myself? You know, and then you put in that bucket, fight, flight, or freeze, you know, why am I allowing myself to be harmed or why do I freeze? And all of it comes back and just 
you know, it's like somebody takes um, one of those paper presses where you push and push and push and push and push and tighten and tighten and tighten until, you know, handmade paper gets flatter and flatter and flatter. That's probably the worst example, but I can't think of anything else. And, you know, you're supposed to press it together and until it dries and then, you know, it's flat. And all of that presses down on us to confuse us. Like what is kind? What is nice? What is being mean? What is having a boundary? What is, how do I even hear myself anymore? And my belief and that, and how I came to this belief, because I don't think anybody told me this. Maybe I read it in, in all the <laughs> codependent books and boundaries books that I read over the years. And it just like by osmosis got in there. But how it really was solidified for me that I can trust my inner wisdom, my inner voice, my instincts about something is this moment when I was learning the, the intensive journaling that I, that I teach with meditative archery and in um, the longer workshop that I do. And I was learning it. We were doing a journaling on um, an event that happened. And the day before I had been at the gas station and in Oregon, you can't pump your own gas. So I was sitting in the car and my kids were really little. I think I've told this story on here before, but it's worth telling again because it's super powerful. And Todd went in to pay and the guy was pumping our gas and I didn't recognize him and he was staring at me and the kids and it was that sexual stare where you're basically being undressed and I was very uncomfortable. And I also didn't know what to do. Do I get out of the car and put my body between him and my kids? Do I say something to my kids? They're little, I didn't want to scare them. And I froze and didn't do anything. And it was a very powerful moment because I think it was one of those crystallized moments where you realize this has been happening for a long time. I knew I, I was very familiar with this feeling. <laughs> and when we drove away, the kids immediately said, why was that guy staring at us? That was really creepy. And so I felt like a failure as a mother on top of all the other freeze, powerless feelings I was feeling. So the next day we did the intensive journaling with an event. And so I was journaling with powerlessness and I started with, I met you at the gas pump. You, you were ogling me and the kids and I froze and I felt powerless to do anything. And that was my opening thing with this feeling. And this is this journaling that I do that somebody was kind enough to teach me um, is based in certain prompts. So then um, eventually in the journaling, you have a dialogue, you have a back and forth conversation with the feeling. So I say to powerlessness, hey, powerlessness, how's it going? Powerlessness says to me, long time no talk. And I say to powerlessness, yeah why would I want to talk to you? And powerlessness says, 
yeah, it's obvious you don't ever talk to me. And I say to powerlessness, again, why would I want to talk to you? I hate the way you make me feel. And powerlessness says to me, if you don't look at me, if you don't make friends with me, strength will never emerge. That was a pivotal moment in my life. Because up until that moment, I didn't really know that you had to make friends with your shadows. I hadn't read a Jungian book. I had been in therapy on and off, but we had never gotten into that stuff yet. It was always other like life, <laughs> keeping me alive things that we were working on. And this moment is one of those moments in, that I can look at and go, my life changed after that moment. And that was like a three minute conversation with the feeling of powerlessness. And I have never been powerless to the same degree I was. Now, the other thing about how profound that was is, again, I, I didn't have any training. I hadn't read a Jungian book. I didn't know about shadow work. I didn't know how to listen really to my inner voice that I was aware of or the wisdom that was inside of me. But yet, wisdom showed up. And wisdom will show up if we listen to it. And that's, and that's why we groom people to not listen to their inner wisdom. Because if people listen to their inner wisdom, then they cannot be controlled. Well, at least it's much more difficult to control them. If people trust their instincts, even if their instincts are wrong, if they, if they follow that path of trusting and learning to trust and making a mistake, and trying again and learning to listen, even if it seems silly. Like sometimes in the beginning, I would practice just like if I heard, yeah, don't drive that way home tonight. I would just do it. Sometimes I would feel silly, but I would go, okay, I'm gonna follow this. And I never know if maybe I avoided a car accident or maybe I avoid, avoided just like stop and go traffic. It wasn't about that. It was about learning to hone the skill that I was denied of listening and trusting myself because my inner voice has my best interests at heart. I'm going to say that again. My inner voice, my inner wisdom has my best interest at heart. It will not fuck with me. That's not inner wisdom. It will not shame me, yell at me, freak me out, that's not inner wisdom. Inner wisdom is a gentle voice. It may be a firm voice. It may be a voice that's like, hey, that was not the kindest approach that you could have taken. I think you need to make it right. That can be inner wisdom, absolutely. In fact, <laughs> a lot of times my inner wisdom is like, you need to do better. You need to go back and apologize. And I, to the best of my ability at this moment in time, I try to listen and follow that, even if it is uncomfortable. And yes, it often is uncomfortable. So I want to I wanna bring something up that also can be confusing. And this came up um, during my friend's uh, retreat that they did that I provided the meditative archery for. 
just a couple weekends ago. And when we were into this journaling that I just kind of described to you, um, one of the women came to me and she was like, what is the difference between inner wisdom and inner critic? How do I tell the difference? And then she stopped herself and she said, oh, the inner critic is always mean and never, you know, it's always critical. That's the inner critic. It's in the title. <laughs> and, and I thought about that because I think that is the first time that somebody has asked me about that. And I think it's an important distinction to make, especially if you, much like me, have a rampant inner critic running its mouth a lot of the times where you have to like pay attention to it and call it out or notice it so that it doesn't just have free reign. But the inner critic is critical and shaming most of the time. I would say probably 100% of the time. Probably very crafty because it's been given free reign in you. And if you if you catch on to its ways and its motives, it has less power in your life. And if it has less power in your life, then you're not listening to it and you're not as easily controlled by it. And so as you start to listen to your inner wisdom, you are developing a love relationship with it. I'm going to say that again one more time. As you are developing this listening and paying attention to your inner wisdom, you are developing a love relationship with it. And really what you're doing is you're developing a love relationship with yourself, which I know is hard because that the church is also fucked up. And culturally often that gets fucked up because it gets into narcissism and all this other stuff, which is not what loving yourself is. Because loving yourself is not loving yourself at the expense of other people and hurting other people. Loving yourself is, is loving yourself and the overflow hits other people in a beautiful way. That's just what it is. So as we listen and develop this love relationship with inner wisdom, we start to see changes because we don't put up with the same BS. We don't put up at things that are not healthy for us and that, ex that are at the expense of us in unhealthy ways. It's like we take less shit. <laughs> and that doesn't mean that there aren't boundaries. It's not healthy. It's more like differentiation. We are becoming more differentiated people. And I really believe that starts with listening to our inner voice and developing that love relationship, that dialogue with it. What do you want? What do you need? What feels good? It is the whole person. It is body, soul, spirit, mind, whole person. It is holistically looking at ourselves, what we need, where we're carrying something in our bodies. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's like, <laughs> love ourselves, 
love creator, love others. Love, loving starts with us. It starts with that, what do you want? What do you need? What feels good? What do you want? What do you need? What feels good? You are allowed to have wants. You are allowed to have needs. You are allowed to do things that feel good to you and help you sustain yourself in a world that is actively trying to end you and to get you to be a sheep, to get you to follow along passively accepting what it dishes out instead of saying, that doesn't feel good to me. What I see happening to them doesn't seem right either. And I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to use my voice. I'm going to use my power. It goes back to what I was talking about in the very beginning. The subtle shifts in you subtly shift what you do out in the world and how you are out in the world, owning yourself, owning your voice, and owning your power. And we need a world that's more full of people that are listening to that voice inside that's saying, this does not seem right. This person does not seem right to hang out with. Does this feel good to you? Even knowing like what feels good in your body, because if you're taught in the church or wherever you grew up to not listen to the subtle nudges from your body saying, you know, this doesn't feel good to me or staying up all night doesn't, <laughs> doesn't feel good. That's an obvious one. You know, what feels good? Where am I holding tension and stress in my body? If somebody would have said to me, when you, when you lock your jaw or where do you, where do you feel tension in your body? And I would really get it as a kid and a teenager in my jaw, like where my jaw would start to hurt. But nobody ever said, that might be a sign that you're, you have anxiety or you're stressed out or you're carrying something. Let's practice some breathing. Let's practice some, you know, stretches that might like, loosen that up. Or, hey, let's just pay attention to that. Like, number one, let's just pay attention to that. Where does that show up for you? When does that show up for you? Oh, when you're hanging out with that person. Oh, hmm, I'm gonna pay attention to that. Does that show up anywhere else for me? Does my jaw start to tighten or my neck or do I get a headache or do I get a stomach ache? Where is that showing up for me in my body? And what might that be telling me? They all work together and we have to start somewhere. I know that if you are looking at your life and saying, you know, I'm 50 or I'm 20 and I've never listened to myself, that seems like a daunting task. Also filled with shame of why, why? Shoulda, coulda, woulda, why didn't I? And yes, and at the same time, you're starting now. Start now, start today, start trying to find that voice that has your best interests at heart, that loves you unconditionally. It is probably the only thing in the world, if you can tap into it, that loves you really unconditionally. Because we're humans 
And we like to say we love each other unconditionally. And I think we're working towards, you know, more of that with our children and with our partners. But also realistically, we don't. So your inner wisdom, the part of you that is sacredly there from the moment you became a human, is the part of you that loves you unconditionally. And that to me is worth fighting for, is worth preserving, is worth nurturing, is worth listening to. Because I think your life depends on it. It absolutely depends on you listening to it. And we need more people listening to it. Thank you for taking the time to listen today. I hope that this was meaningful. I, I'd love to hear like what your journey has been with trying to listen or trying to trust or reestablish connection with wisdom. And have you had trouble with your inner critic showing up and trying to shame you down from, from listening? I'd love to know it all. I'd love to know if you have any secrets of listening, what you've done to try to build that relationship back up because we're all learners. We're all trying to figure it out. Remember who you are. Remember who you are. You are worth knowing. You are worth loving. You are worth being in this world. Take care, everybody. I appreciate you listening. Before I go, go completely, I did want to take a moment to let you guys know what happened while I was traveling. I did a couple workshops in Montana, um, in Helena, and it was fantastic. The weather was amazing and people resonated with it because one of the women immediately the next day went and got herself a bow and all of her own equipment, which is super cool. I love it when that happens. And then I went on to Colorado. A little funny side note is I decided to drive because when I originally mapped out my plans, I don't know what I did, but I thought that it was only about seven hours from Helena to the Boulder area in Colorado where I was going. And my brother-in-law tried to help me and say that it wasn't, but it was. It was not seven hours. It was 11 hours. <laughs> so driving from Portland to Montana was 10. Driving from, and 10 is pushing it for me straight through. And then driving from Helena to Boulder area was like, no, it wasn't Boulder. It was Denver. Driving to that area, not to mention just the wind through Wyoming and the no masks and the no protocols. I just was like head down, foot to the floor, trying not to speed too much. And um, anyway, <laughs> that's not that important. I made it. I was exhausted. And in a matter of three days, I took 34 at least 34 people through the meditative archery workshops. I did a version for kids that was um, 
not the journaling, but a similar bent where you can shoot at or with troubling feelings or people to get yourself some freedom. I had six teens and tweens join for that. It was fantastic. I cannot even, there aren't words to describe it. Just the joy on the faces of the kids and then also the faces of the adults. And I, I, I know that there were people out there holding space for me, you know, cause it was a lot, it was a lot of energy. And I think I don't, I'm still recovering from it. And then I came back to Portland and had a few days to one day, really, it was, it was a bad idea. Y'all I had one day to rest fully. And then I started, you know, getting my equipment ready and stuff that I needed to then do my my friend Amy McMullen's retreat at the coast, the Navigator retreat, there were 12 women and I was able to take 11 women because one of them wasn't able to stay through the meditative archery as well. So within less than a two and a half week period of time and 42 hours of driving plus um, I was able to take 45 women, men, and children through some version of my meditative archery workshops. And I'm still kind of trying to wrap my head around that, the power, the freedom, the owning your space in the world. Um, I wish I could t- take every person in the world through it so that for a moment in time, they could feel their power and feel empowered in their bodies and through archery. It's, there isn't really anything like it. And if you don't believe me, you can ask other people. And that brings me to something that I want to do for those of you that have stayed listening. I had this idea today that I would like to fundraise for some bows and arrows for the refuge community, which is where I was at in Colorado. My friend Kathy Escobar um, is one of the leaders of that community, and she works so hard to make things accessible for people that would never get to do them. So they, she and her husband Jose bought a house in Golden, Colorado, It's an amazing area with all of these beautiful hikes. We saw a moose, huge moose outside of her house, very dangerous and also very exciting. And they have made Beauty Heels a place where anybody can come and have a retreat of some kind without any financial restrictions. So people that would never get to go on a retreat in nature would never get to stay at like an Airbnb, a fancy place, get to stay in a beautiful house in the middle of nature and also potentially get to shoot on the Angie Fatal archery range, which is, if you've listened to the podcast, an archery range that I helped map out for them. And then a group of people that care about them built an archery range for them. And that's the archery range we used. It's beyond any 
any expectation that I had. It it's blows my expectations clean out of the water. So they've also made archery something that is accessible for people that would never get to do it. And so when we go, we try to give as many free sliding scale, pay what you can options for people that would never get the opportunity to do archery. She also does water heels, which is taking people to ski and get on the water. Again, that's an access thing for most people. And they have, as much as they can, taken out that piece. So anybody that reaches out to them or within their community um, can do it. There's a lot of people that um, come and use the resources and the food that they have um, that live outside. And so all of these opportunities are made available for people that live outside. So here's my idea. If you are interested, I would like to fundraise for equipment for them. I would like to fundraise to get arrows, the arrows that I like, a bunch of arrows and some age appropriate and um, body appropriate bows. And what I mean by that is bows that I have come to find that I think work best for most people, left and right handed. I would like to raise money to get at least six bows and 40 arrows. I think that will be, that would be like three adult bows and three kids bows. And by kids bows, I mean something that is, this is for archery nerds, which are probably 1% of this podcast. Anyway, uh, something like 15 pound bows, most kids. 12 and 13 could pull back the string of a 15 pound bow. And I'd like to get them 40 arrows, adult sizes and kid sizes. So that would be roughly $600. So I'm going to put in some money and I would like to fundraise. And if you would like to give $5, $10, $20, I'll have my Venmo and the information in the show notes. Here's the thing that I want to explain is Kathy takes something. She would take $10 and stretch it into a hundred. She would take six bows and make sure that everybody inside or outside that wanted access to archery have the opportunity to try it. And there are very few things that are so powerful and empowering in your body. And so that's my idea. If you're interested My Venmo will be in the show notes and you can say fundraise for archery equipment so that I know what it's for. And I would appreciate any donations. Regardless, I'm going to take whatever I can take and get as much equipment as I can with the money that I personally am going to donate. Thank you again for listening and um, being who you are in the world. Thanks. Bye.